Welcome to ConX, a global leadership platform for construction to executives. I have Bob Clark on the on the line with me today. Bob, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm doing well. Um, uh, I'll be glad when we're out of January, so this is not so cold. But uh, so, Bob, tell me, you uh, you're the uh, uh, president of Clayco. I am the actually I'm the chairman and uh, chief executive. Let's see. I'm the uh, wait a minute. I'm the executive chairman and founder of the company. No, I haven't been the president for like 20 years. And the CEO is actually a phenomenal guy named Russ Burns, who really, really has done a great job of helping me grow the business. Outstanding. So tell me a little bit about you. Tell me about how you uh, started and uh, how you know started the business. Where did yeah. you grow up? That kind of thing. Yeah, so I didn't um, I didn't go to college. I grew up in a little town outside of St. Louis, actually, where the airport is in Bridgeton, Missouri. And, um, you know, I grew up in uh, my dad had a painting contracting business. So I did see construction jobs and that sort of thing as a kid. And then what really was a turning point for me is that um, Ozark Airlines, which was an airline in the 60s that was doing well out of St. Louis and bought by TWA eventually was building their headquarters right next to my elementary school. And I used to go over there and uh, probably steal plywood and stuff to build a fort. But I actually really got <laughs> fascinated by the project. And uh, my dad started asking me questions about the construction job, like what was going on over there, who was doing what. And I just became fascinated. And I got to know some of the plumbers and some of the carpenters and every day after school, I would go over and, and watch them build this building, which is still there today uh, on the Lambert airport grounds. And um, after that, I really never had any vision of doing anything except being a builder and uh, didn't go to college. I got into architecture school, but I really was not, um, you know, I was not the kind of college person. So after five weeks, I, I quit and uh, I did a few other things, but then I started Clayco in um, 1984. And so uh, what what got you to, I mean, obviously you, you went to college and you figured out, hey, this is not what I want to do. Uh, How did you know where to go from there? Because that seems to be like a, you know, a difficult thing, especially, you know, for even for myself just to think, hey, I'm just going to start a business and I'm a young man. Well, well, first of all, if you think about all of the really big contractors in the country today, and especially true with subcontractors, a lot of concrete contractors are were guys that were that immigrated to the United States. They didn't go to school at all. They were laborers at a concrete company. They thought they could do it themselves. And they started, I think of Cesar Vitale, who built a giant concrete company in St. Louis called VJ, uh, who, who uh, you know, didn't even speak English when he came to the country. So there are a lot of construction companies that are startups, maybe generation ago or two generations ago. I uh, really loved architecture. I loved construction, you know, going out on jobs with my dad when he was the painting contractor. And then uh, I tried some other things. I tried having my own little painting business. I eventually got in the equipment business and um, again, selling some construction equipment, oil field equipment, and that sort of thing. 
there I really learned what I did not want to do. But I still kind of harken back to, you know, I really loved construction. I loved architecture. I was studying all kinds of different architects. I had built a pretty good collection of architect, uh, architect books um, and um, guys like Mario Bada and, you know, just all the architects, Frank Lloyd Wright, I had a bunch of Frank Lloyd Wright books. And um, so when I was 25, I had sold my interest in the equipment business and I thought, mm-hmm. I'm just going to give it a go. And I, I started from scratch, very humble start. I only had one employee who I'm still in great contact with, who spent the rest of his career with me. And his name is Alan Connor, employee number one. We started out, we um, started out doing interior finish because that's a, that's a pretty easy way to get started. Mm-hmm. I was doing my own drywall. We were, you know, hiring carpet contractors and I started putting in acoustical ceilings and, you know, I started calling on the property management companies around town. I really had no idea what I was doing. And um, I pretty also quickly learned, um, you know, when I started, I really didn't even know like how the process worked. The customer goes out and decides they're going to build a building. Then they go hire an architect. Then they bid the construction out to the general contractors. The general contractors bid it all out to the subcontractors. You get the low bidder. You get the, you know, as I I just started looking at it from a perspective of does this make any sense? And um, honestly, I thought the whole process was pretty toxic. You know, there was a lot of uh, adversarial behavior. I just thought, man, oh, man, this is. This is absolutely awful and not what I want to do at all. And um, right about the time I was maybe going to quit in 1986, I'd been doing interior finish for Mercantile Bank in St. Louis. I got to know a guy named Don Lasseter, who was the chairman of the bank. I actually did work in his office space, and I guess I got to meet him. And um, somehow things came together, and um, I ended up building a good number of kind of branch banks for Mercantile Bank, which became U.S. Bank. And I was doing those projects like I wanted to do projects. The client was telling me his problem. I was going out and helping find the locations. I was dealing with the zoning and the title issues and getting the permits. I hired the architect, which was a fantastic guy named Bob Bolin back in the day. And... um, I did these jobs as a developer and as a design builder, even though I didn't actually know exactly what to call it right then. I thought I was inventing it. And um, I did you the concrete were. work myself. So, so, I, so I was integrated. I had a, my own concrete company from the very beginning. I had the uh, architect working for me. I you know, partnered with Diebold, who provided all the bank equipment and also taught me how to how, how branch banks should work. Um, and I was listening to consultants tell me how to solve the problem instead of me going and telling them how to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then Bob Bolin, the architect who I used to do all these banks, introduced me to a very well-known developer in St. Louis uh, named Dale Perkinson, who had Lynn Clay development across the Midwest and in Denver and in Ohio and Missouri, and they were kind of the big 
the big hitter developers in the Midwest at the time. And he was the founder of the company and he had just come back to kind of rescue the company out of some uh, rough economic times in, in the kind of mid eighties. And uh, I, I met him, I told him what I was doing for the bank. And he said, I really need somebody like you to help, help take over some of these projects I have going on. And um, he loved the concept of telling me his problem and me working with Bob Bullen or other architects or whoever was the best person to do the job. And that, you know, got my business started as a design builder. I ended up building about 18 million square feet of product for, for Dale over about a five-year period. And that was enough work for me to start having a real nucleus, recruiting great team members, and so on and so forth, and, and start having my strategy and my vision that I did have a vision kind of come to life. And uh, well, you know, without good, without good people, you don't have anything. And without business, you don't have anything. So I had the business with Dale Perkinson. I was recruiting, uh, which wasn't, wasn't popular at the time for a building company to recruit from other building companies, believe it or not. Um, but I was I was doing that kind of ruthlessly, hiring really great people who knew how to build stuff from uh, from some of the competitors around St. Louis because I didn't actually know how to build the buildings. I needed really talented people that knew how, and um, that's how I how I got started. Well, wow, that's an interesting story, and uh, I've built banks before, and uh, it's. To kind of cut your teeth on something like that is <laughs> is a pretty interesting thing, uh, you know, concept, an idea. And, and you were design build actually. You were you were design build before design build really knew what design build was, you know. Well, well, design build was how all the great cathedrals and Colosseum and everything else was built thousands of years ago. It doesn't make sense the way most contracting and construction is bought in the United States. I'm not sure exactly how it got there uh, after World War II, maybe this kind of started happening. But, you know, even back in the days of of Kaiser, uh, Bechtel, um, um, Knudsen, you know, those guys, you know, they were master builders. But thousands of years ago, everything was built, design, build. You know, the cardinal mm -hmm. or the pope would go to a single kind of person, have talk about his vision, that person would then put the whole team together, go buy a quarry or, you know, acquire a quarry and cut the stone and do the design and everything. And so it's, um, I didn't invent it. I just kind of brought it back into fashion, if you will, in the kind of in the eighties and early nineties. And my client base loved it. And, um, it was an upsell though. It was kind of hard to sell at the at the beginning, but I really stayed completely focused on really, you know, deciding I would never act as a general contractor, which I still think is a dirty word in, in the company, and um, that I would never really work where an architect was kind of telling me what to do. I would work in partnership with the architect and uh, really also develop stronger partnership alliances with subcontractors, suppliers, and vendors, because, you know, the system is, is so broken 
uh, and take the adversary out of the process so that we can all work towards our client's objective. It's kind of always my vision. So tell, so let's fast forward to where you currently are, where Clayco currently is. Tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about what your core focus is and kind of what the plans for the future are. Yeah, so, and I'll, I'll maybe go back a little bit. So I think by, by 2010, the company was, you know, easily in the top 50 building companies in the country. Um, we still were staying very focused on development real estate development as a, as a part of our practice. We had developed a very strong in-house architecture and engineering company. We have our concrete company is, of course, one of the top five concrete companies in the country. And in 2010, I really moved to Chicago. We were in St. Louis, Missouri. We had long, way before outgrown our uh, capability to grow our company in St. Louis, actually in the 90s early 90s, we decided to really start focusing on national business. And by 2010, we had been, you know, working in almost every state in the country, had projects in probably 30 cities across the United States, and um, really decided that uh, St. St. we were not able to recruit the kind of talent that we needed into the business in St. Louis. So mm -hmm. we moved the headquarters to Chicago. Uh, very much, very thoughtful, strategic planning process led to this decision. And um, and since 2000, say 12 or 13, we've grown the business. This year we'll, we'll exceed, last year we exceeded over $5 billion in revenue. About a billion of that is our, in our real estate development operation. And the rest of that is our core uh, construction revenue. And of course, we have the concrete company doing about $600 million a year across the United States. And we, we have a few core focuses in the business. We are, I think, the largest industrial builder in the United States. Uh, we delivered about 38 million square feet of uh, warehouse and distribution last year, which was about 10% of the entire uh, 400 million square feet built in the country. So we're mm -hmm. very much established as a very uh, significant industrial builder. We're also doing advanced manufacturing. We're working, building a car plant. Uh, we've done a lot of automotive work. We're doing, we just finished the largest battery plant in the United States for SK out of, uh, out of South Korea. Two, $2 billion part of that project was in our portfolio down in Commerce, Georgia, the largest construction job in the state in the last 15 years or probably ever. Um, so we have a very solid food and beverage business. So I'd say over half of our overall portfolio is advanced manufacturing, food and beverage, all, all things industrial, including some of the process and installation. Uh, within our design group, we also have a process engineering group now. So we're doing a lot of the actual internal um, design and engineering of those processes. So that is all integrated as well. Then the rest of our business, we have a um, good bit of what I call corporate business, which includes our hyperscale data center business, mm -hmm. which will account for about a billion dollars in revenue this year. We have our um, office, you know, office is slow right now, but we have always done a lot of 
um, new ground up office construction, renovation, and that sort of thing. And then we have a institutional, which includes our healthcare, research and development, and upper education. We don't do K through 12 because that's mostly hard bid kind of general contracting, headbutting kind of work that we don't really aspire to do. But uh, we do a lot of uh, upper education. We're probably on 10 college campuses kind of in the rotation doing uh, uh, once you get on these campuses, you kind of stay. And then we do some specialty work as well. Some more what I would call uh, we're the project manager for the um, Obama Presidential Center in Chicago. Um, some of that, some of that sort of thing. We do have aviation. We're one of the, in a partnership with ACOM, we're one of the builders uh, at O'Hare, which is do, undergoing a massive historic expansion. So that's kind of today, the status quo is that we have a major office in St. Louis. We still have over a thousand employees in our office in St. Louis. Um, we do do work in St. Louis, but it accounts for a small percentage of our overall revenue. We do some work in Chicago, but I didn't move to Chicago to be a top five Chicago builder, although mm -hmm. we have quite a bit of work there. I went there to to build um, a world-class team of executives and project executives and project manager. Um, Clayco has always been a traveling company, and we we do still travel a lot. We're in 45 cities right now, but we have smaller offices we call base camps, like in Atlanta. We have a fairly large operation in Greenville, South Carolina. We have Culver City now, where we probably have 100 people in LA. We have a very substantial presence in Phoenix, Arizona now, which is mm -hmm. kind of new over the last four years, but I'd say we're a top two or three builder in Phoenix now after just being there a few years. And so, so how um, much, that's kind how of much do you, how much do you attribute a lot of that? Cause you probably sit back like I do and think, wow, something that I founded has grown into this, you know, kind of in a, a little bit of uh, a little bit of that. But I also go back and I think, what was the founding found? What was the foundation that allowed this to happen? What would you say that is for you and Clayco? Well, I only allow myself to pat myself on the back for about five seconds a year because I'm still you know, very busy building the business with my team. But um, so I don't think about that too much. But I would say looking back, the three core principles of the business are to hire the best and brightest. Um, second core, the, treat everybody the way you want to be treated. This means, um, you know, building great partnerships with subcontractors and suppliers who are the lifeblood of our business. Back when I started, you know, subcontractors were constantly shopped. People weren't paying their bills on time. Everything flowed down uh, in a negative way to the subcontractor pool. We elevated that and made the subcontractors and suppliers and vendors our true partners. Um, I couldn't build anything without them, obviously. And I mm -hmm. had to woo them away from contractors that they'd been working for for 50 years to an upstart contractor. And I could only do that with a new proposition 
which that I was going to treat them fair and make them my partners in my success. And so that comes back to this treat everybody the way you want to be treated. And so if you really hire the best and brightest people and you really have the best subcontractor and supply relationships, then you can really be selective about where you apply your craft. And so I think those three key principles still work for us today exactly. And the, um, you know, being true to being the art and science of building, which is our kind of our, we own that. And then we also own beyond these walls, which is really simple, is that what happens inside these buildings is far more important than the bricks and mortar. And if we never lose sight of that, that we know that for the car manufacturers that we work for, they have to make cars and sell cars and it has to be an excellent product. And we have to help build a facility that helps them build cars instead of building a facility that we can make a big profit on. Um, if you get my message, if we're building a hospital, we're working for the patients. If we build a, and we did build the uh, R&D facility where the vaccine for Pfizer was developed and also the pilot plant where the RNA messenger was manufactured, we weren't thinking about the building or, or COVID. We were thinking about scientists developing life-saving cures. And that's a mindset that I think is uh, unique in the business in terms of we wake up in the morning thinking about solving our client's problem instead of waking up trying to figure out how to enhance our fee or get a change order. That's that's a fundamental paradigm shift in our business that I think was an accelerator for how we how we built the company. Articulating that message to key people that worked for our competitors was a powerful tool to recruit them to our platform and so we were able to accumulate a lot of talent by really articulating a very different vision in the in the business and i think you know that's what got us where we are and, and we're still doing that but we're also growing our business very thoughtfully and when i say thoughtfully i mean never diluting profit per person as we grow the company. So in other words, if you looked at our numbers and I would I would think our uh, gross margins are probably similar, but our net profit is way higher than the competitor, the average competitor because, not because we make more money on each thing, but because we we make a profit in our real estate development business. We make a profit in the design build business. Our architecture practice is profitable. Our concrete company is profitable. We do curtain wall. And so when we when we can integrate and bring these things together, it's powerful for our client, but it's also very powerful for our bottom line. Well, it's a, it's a, an amazing model you got there. I just keep on thinking the entire time you're talking. It's really about a solution for your client, you know, keeping your focus on that solution. And it sounds like you've done a great job. I mean, obviously, your company has not grown over the years uh, without having a, a a good plan like that. So let's turn a little bit to uh, talk about some significant events. If you had to name one or two uh, significant events in the history of your company, what would you say they are? 
one significant event was, uh, you know, I think I, I do think if you go back and dwell on the history a little bit, and again, I don't do a lot of that because I'm so focused on what, what, what to do in the next five or 10 years. But um, looking back, you know, you could definitely see milestone projects like getting those banks for Mr. Lassiter, uh, who, by the way, I stayed in touch with. He just passed away a few years ago at 91. Um, getting those banks, then getting Dale Perkinson and doing some of those Keystone big projects that got us in the tilt-up concrete business on the industrial side. Uh, winning, you know, the um, the Best Buy distribution account. So when Best Buy changed from Sound of Music to Best Buy in the 80s, and then they started growing their platform. I really was their builder to build out their whole distribution network. I didn't build the stores, uh, but I built their, their capability to deliver to the stores. And that was a key milestone for our company. So, you know, you can go back and you can look at key projects that kind of led you into a, a new industry or a new place. You know, Best Buy, got us into building the, they were at the, in the late eighties, early nineties, building gigantic buildings, which were almost unheard of in, in that time frame. These were, you know, million square foot buildings. And there was a time in the mid nineties when I had seven, 1 million square foot buildings under construction in the country. And almost none of our other competitors had any. So when we were competing for that business, we kind of became the go-to company for these really big buildings with a company that could travel. And so that was a major milestone. But a really big, big turning point for the company came in 2000 when I uh, got a phone call from Hal Parmalee, who had been the recent president of Turner Construction and had been at Turner for 50 years, I think 50 years. And when they were bought by Hocktief by a German company, he, le he left the company. And mm -hmm. um, he reached out to me really to connect me to his son, who was still at Turner, because he wanted his son to, to be able to work and learn how to do design build. And um, so I was like, absolutely, Mr. Parmalee, your son can come here. I'll teach him how to do design build. He said he would go back, you know, he wanted to learn the business and then go back to the East Coast somewhere. But he's he's still with me now, Harold uh, Parmalee is. But Hal was a visionary person who really knew how Turner worked and how they came together and what made them so successful. He came, he came and joined my board and became the you know chairman of my board and was absolutely critically involved in the strategy for our business going forward. Because if you think about me, you know, I was probably 35 years old or something at that time. I grew mm -hmm. the business to almost a half a billion dollars in revenue. I was way over my skis. I really needed help. And having a person of Hal Parmalee's stature, and then also at the same time, Ray Peeper, uh, had left Alberici Construction in St. Louis, and uh, Ray joined my board also. Those two guys, along with a handful of other people, but those two two people, if you can imagine a kid like me getting that kind of bandwidth, that kind of access to, 
to the big picture. And um, Hal really was the architect of our strategy, which is to build our profit centers around product types, not offices, where a lot of our competitors have like an office in Atlanta, an office in, you know, Chicago, an office Mm -hmm. in Columbus, Ohio, an office in Philadelphia. And each of those offices become almost like a franchise. They become like they, they, they become their own entity and they become like a silo. At Clayco, we don't have any silos because everybody in the company works for me and for a handful of other people like Steve Seacast and Russ Burns. We, we decide where people go, when they go, what, you know, what projects they're going to do. We don't have um, independent silos in the organization that kind of become fiefdoms, if you will. And that was very much Hal Parmalee and Ray Peeper's direction to me. So our industrial business unit is a profit center. It doesn't matter whether a job is in Philadelphia or Phoenix. Those jobs all report up to the business unit. Mm-hmm. So Phoenix just happens to be a place where people live. These other offices are not profit centers. So everybody in the company is mobile. When we hire people, we say you can live anywhere you want. You can go to St. Louis. You can go to Chicago. You, as you can imagine, a lot of people raise their hands to go to Phoenix. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's a very different, it's a very, very different strategy and a model I'm not familiar that any of our competitors share. And that was a critical turning point was Hal, Hal Parmley. Another one was Russ Burns coming into the company. Uh, I think he came about 2007. Uh, unfortunately, my my first wife had had been diagnosed with a uh, a terminal disease, a genetic disorder, which which did take her life in 2010. But in 2006 and seven, as I realized, you know, I was taking care of her. I was really not in a position to really take care of the business. I really needed to bring on a big, you know, big leader to the company. And Hal Parmalee actually reached back to his Turner roots. Russ was actually on sabbatical from Turner, but had spent Mm -hmm. his whole entire career there. And uh, that was another milestone for the business, which I look back and think, you know, we would never have been able to get a leader like Russ Burns to, to join our company. Had he been at Turner, he probably wouldn't have left Turner for the opportunity. So it's all just, it was all just timing. And I don't think he would have, uh, he, he had not intended to go back into the construction business. He came to Clayco because he has a big heart and it was, he knew that I needed, um, you know, he, he knew that I needed help to, so that I could go take care of my wife and uh, not have to worry about the business. And quite frankly, he just stepped right in and, I could never have done with the business what Russ Burns did with the business. You know, we're partners. We work, talk together sometimes five times a day. But um, so he did, you know, we did it together. But I would say I couldn't have done it without him. So those are kind of some of the key, the key milestones. Um, so let's, 
let's you know, turn another... to you. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say one one later key milestone would you know we'll look back we'll look back forever at um, going to the West Coast. So we had planned to go to the West Coast. It was in our strategy for probably seven years, and about three years ago we had a total business plan. We were ready to go. We were ready to to go get office space, recruit, you know, we had people lined up to take major roles in the business on the West Coast. And um, same thing in Phoenix. And pre-COVID, it was so hot. You know, you just couldn't find office space. You couldn't, you know, people were, the business was booming out there. We just, for some, I got cold feet. I don't get cold feet very often, but I I told uh, my partner, Ryan McGuire, who was really ready to go leave this whole thing. I said, I'm not going to pull the trigger on it right now. We're going to wait. And he said, wait for what? And I said, we're going to wait for something. I don't know. You know, there's going to be a downturn in the economy. Eventually it's a cycle. You know, there'll be a recession. Something is going to happen. And we didn't have to wait very long because about a year later, uh, we were six weeks or eight weeks into COVID. So maybe uh, May of 2020, and I called Ryan on the phone. I said, Ryan, something happened. Now is the time. And so we just, you know, we went out and uh, launched our plan in, in California. I think we have a one and a half or $2 billion backlog and about a $10 billion pipeline in California now. And at the same time, Katera went out of business. It wasn't very hard to see that coming. Mm-hmm. Um, SoftBank kept pouring. And every time I thought they were going to go out of business, they would pour another $400 million or whatever. It was baffling, still an unbelievable baffling mystery to me, that they had a lot of talent, and particularly in uh, Phoenix. And so we um, had been talking to some of their folks. And so when Katera finally did go into bankruptcy, we were able to pick up a really amazing group of talented people and kind of launch a base program in Phoenix. And we had already uh, put a stake in the ground to buy um, actually several thousand acres of land in the industrial markets out there, which we did do. And so we really planted a flag in Phoenix at the same time that we opened a significant operation in LA to, to manage our West what we call our West Coast operation. And that that will, when we look back 10 years from now, those are going to be really significant things that we did in the business, similar to moving our headquarters to Chicago in 2010. So let's turn it, the, you know, the focus a little bit to you personally, because there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are maybe entering the industry or are mid-level managers and want to be an executive with the company someday. And, and they always ask me, what personal skills and abilities do these individuals you interview, what do they have? What's the secret sauce for them? And I'm interested to know from you, what do you believe? And I know you're a humble man, but tell me honestly what skills and ability you think that you had that have really been uh, a help to the business? Well, for me, 
first of all, you have to have, this is a hard, I think, I think the construction business is a hard, hard business. You know, it's a hard hitting, tough business and it's not for everybody. And the first thing I think you have to have is a, is an incredible passion for, for building things, for building up people and for solving problems. And cause there's a lot of complicated problems to solve in the construction business. And sometimes it takes more grit than intelligence to solve some of these kind of problems. <laughs> and so I think uh, people who do really well, the people who I think of in my organization that have done phenomenally well, um, really, really are passionate about the business. They share also a, a common uh, commonality with me and really wanting to advocate for others to be to, to be successful in the business. If people who are not successful in the business or people who kind of hold everything in the, you know under their arms and keep stuff in their drawers and don't really tell everybody what the secret sauce is. We want everybody to know what the secret sauce is. I don't even care if our competitors learn what the secret sauce is from us because even if they know what the recipe is, they can't cook it. Mm -hmm. You know, it has to be, it, it has to be, you know, you know, what Clayco has that nobody else has or can duplicate is this, this culture that is hard to describe if you don't see it from either a client's perspective, a subcontractor's perspective, or, or working at the company. I can't tell you how many people we've, we've hired um, who over some six months or a year period reach directly out to me and say, holy Toledo, I can't believe I came from a great company and I just can't believe how much better I feel about my career here because they're like part of every, every, every bit of putting the heart and soul around the culture of the business comes from everybody in the business, not, not me or not two or three of the partners, but everybody can, can participate in helping build the culture of our company. And so I think, I think people in other construction companies or building their own company, you know, have to have this passion. You have to have the grit. You have to have a, you know, raw basic intelligence. And it's good if you know how to do math. And you also have to be a great advocate for building your team members up. I think a thing sometimes that holds used to, I don't think it's happening as much holding women uh, back in the business or in mm -hmm. um, even, you know, we have a great, you know, I think in our company, we have 46 different languages that are spoken. We have an incredibly diversified uh, and inclusive company. And we didn't start that a few years ago. We started that 30 plus years ago. And um, I told women who first joined the company um, that they really, they really have to have each other's back. And they really, instead of like trying to get ahead by getting ahead or stepping past their peers, they were going to get ahead by locking their arms with their, 
you know, with their cohorts and, and coming up together and advocating for each other and, tr you know, getting each other's back. And that's, that's really a critical thing in, in all leadership in all companies, whether it's construction or technology or any other business is um, those are the kind of traits I think that leaders have to have. And then, you know, because our company is so focused on the community, I think um, I, when I'm interviewing people, I always uh, somewhere, whether it's in the middle of the conversation or right up front, I'm asking people what they're passionate about in the community. And I love when I am interviewing a, a college graduate who tells me they've been serving on their um, on the college newspaper, for example. And that really gets my attention that somebody is putting their time and attention into something that's better for the bigger cause. And uh, those mm -hmm. are the kind of people we want to surround ourselves with at Clayco. Keeping along the same kind of thought process as that, talking about like skills and ability. If you had to go back and talk to 18, 19 year old Bob Clark, what would you tell him? What kind of advice would you give him? Well, I would tell him to be a better driver <laughs> because I was a pretty <laughs> reckless I was a pretty reckless driver. Um, what would I tell him? And I know that's a tough well, question I, because because uh, no, when you I, look at no, it, I, go ahead. No, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the answer. When I was eighteen years old or nineteen years old, or when I started Clayco when I was twenty-five or twenty-four, I was working eighty hours a week. I was working so hard that almost nothing else mattered. And it took me a long time to learn that everything else matters. My mm -hmm. family mattered. I neglected my family. You know, my children, I think, have completely forgiven me for it. Maybe they don't remember it, but I was, I was absent. Um, it wasn't uh, until later probably when I was 30, 31 years old. So maybe, I don't even know when that was, but what I would say, 91, something like that, that uh, I joined YPO, Young Presidents Organization. I was one of the youngest members ever. And for the first time I had a, a group of peers, almost like my own fraternity because I didn't go to college. I didn't have that. Uh, although they were full of men and women who became mentors to me where I really got to know that you cannot be productive working even 60 hours a week or 80 hours a week or 70. You really have to balance your life. And um, I really coach my teams to take the time they need to recharge their batteries. My best ideas, our biggest ideas of our executives come when they're on a ski trip with their family or they're on a hiking trip. I've hiked all over the world. I climb mountains. I spend a lot of time by myself. And um, I think that, you know, get, having a more balanced life is really critical. And that's music to everybody's ears now because of the whole, you know, people are trying to work from home. They're trying to have more um, 
flexible lifestyles and time. And, you know, Clayco is going to adapt to some of those things. We're never going to adapt to work from home because I think that's the biggest bunch of crap in the world. I don't think it's good for people. It's not good for businesses. America will lose our edge of productivity if we if we all go home and start working from home. There are certain people that can work from home. Um, there are certain jobs that can work from home. I'm not saying there are not, but the vast majority of, of the workforce, including our construction workers, can't work from home. They have to be on our construction site. How can we all be like at home while we have guys toiling out in the winter or the hot temperatures or whatever, and we're like, oh, we're at the grocery store working. So, so I'm a very, very big opponent of work from home, but I'm a big advocate for being versatile and flexible now. Mm-hmm. So we're mostly uh, four days a week. You know, we want, we're not four tens. We, we want one day of work from home. We kind of always work. We're always kind of on at Clayco, but we want people to take the time that they need to take care of their families. Um, if they have a special situation, we're going to address that. If they have to take care of their mother, we're going to help them figure out how to do that. If they have a special child care problem, we're going to use some work from home to solve that problem. But in general, we're going to we're going to be in the office at least four days a week. And I think um, those are the kind of things I think I learned along the way in terms of having a more balanced life uh, made us much more successful and productive. Isn't it funny how you go through life thinking one thing's important and at the end you realize <laughs> it's the other. Uh, well, uh, I appreciate. Spent, you know, I, go ahead. Yeah, but I've spent. You know, I have spent a good bit of time away from the business too, and and have other interests. And when I'm in the business, I'm a hundred percent in the business. I'm always have one foot in the business, but you know, I do a lot of other things that are outside of the business, including a lot of community stuff. So. Well, uh, the great advice there, and uh, you got you sound like you got a great company there. So I want to switch gears here to our speed round, and I have eight different categories. I want you to rate them one to ten. One being, you know, not very important. Ten being really important, and they could all be tens. So um, this is kind of interesting because based on the on the person you're interviewing. So uh, feel free to add any comments. Uh, to the, each of these categories as you give them a number. So if you're ready, we'll begin. Go. Uh, scheduling. Well, it's a 10. I mean, you you have to be on time in our business. Um, you can't even be late for a meeting. I think it's very disrespectful for people to come to meetings late, but it's also a message to our customers that we're going to be late. And, you know, the schedule, being on time and on budget, um, is is critical. Estimating. Mm. Eight. Do you do you have any comments for that one or any no. thoughts? I mean, you know, I think in the design build business, because in our business we're not hard bidding jobs like against ten other general contractors bidding to build a bridge or whatever. I think for some of them, estimating might be a 10. But for us, you know, getting close and making sure our client understands 
what the deal is and what our fee is and what we think the price range is because we're really going to get the best deal for our customer not like when we're putting our estimate together but when really buying the job and you have to have the job to have the the firepower to get the best pricing from the subcontractors and suppliers and clients have really come around to that in the last four or five years so partnering gotcha. with us is is really the essential ingredient to getting the lowest cost at the end of the day and the best product so the sense. next two categories one's contract the actual physical contract and the second one is the contract administration the actual execution administratively of the contract so we'll start with the written contract it's a two because if you if your handshake contract isn't great you know i always say you could do a uh let's see you can do um How's it go? Good, good deal with a bad person, bad deal with a good person. I mean, you know, the truth is when I built all those banks for Don Lasseter, I never had a contract. I had a handshake. So, I mean, eventually you have to get your contract right. But I, I don't I think if it's about if the partnership isn't good, it doesn't matter what the contract says. Hmm. Now, my general counsel, counsel will yell at me when she hears me say that. <laughs> that's really how I feel. What was the second part of that? Con oh, contract administration. Contract administration. I think you got to, yeah, I think administering the contract by your team is really critically important. Once you get it, once you get your job going, some of the projects that we build are very, very complex. You know, our clients hire us to build their riskiest projects. And there's usually a lot of changes when you're building a food process plant or you're building a, you know, especially a car plant because they're, they're, they're designing their processes and their their paint shop and all that stuff as they go. And so so there can be a lot of changes. And so having good change management and administrating the contract is is really crucial, I think. Uh, design. Ten. I think getting both your clients aspiration right, but also getting the um, construction documents perfect is mm -hmm. really essential to having a job without a lot of change orders. I think one of the things um, that Clayco has done is by having our in-house architecture practice, we have built the best architecture of record group of technical architects in the in the business because I own the risk on almost all my projects. So I've worked really hard at having the best technical shop in the industry so we get our construction. So even if we're working with the best architect designer, if you don't have a great set of documents, you're in big trouble. So that's a 10. You have to have the right design. Um, accounting. I don't know anything about accounting. <laughs> <laughs> I can't rate it. <laughs> I have a lot of really good. I have a lot of really good accountants, but I don't. I'm not qualified. Well, that's a good. That's a good answer. Uh, uh, business development or sales. Some people like to call it's it. It's a ten. You know, I always tell people who are in you know any kind of business. Like I, 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 I do some 
you know, business school lectures and stuff like that. And I, I meet young entrepreneurs all the time. And I go to um, like 1871 has this amazing incubator of all these bright kids that are starting new businesses and techno companies and the next Facebook and the next whatever. And the one thing I always tell these young people and young entrepreneurs is to be in business, you have to have business. You have to do something that causes revenue and causes you to invoice a customer and get paid, right? So getting business is the essential ingredient to being in business. And so business development and having a great sales organization is really important. And at Clayco, I'll tell you, in our kind of almost astronomical growth we've had in the last five or seven years, to, to grow the business to $5 billion. Every year, 50% of our business in the last five years has been new business. You think about that for a second. So that wow. means we're retaining almost all of our existing customers. And in a flat year, like in a flat sales year, 90% of our business would be repeat business. But the reason we're growing so fast is because 50% of our business is new every year. So that means we really know how to sharpen our pencil. We know how to get in front of other clients. You know, we're getting leads from every place, from our subcontractors, from architects that we work with, from, from industry professionals and vendors and suppliers. And so you have to have a great a business development is a 15 on this list. Last but not least, leadership. Well, obviously, that's a 10. You know, I think, I think, um, I think servant leadership, I think, I think leadership that mentors, that teaches, I think leadership that advocates those kind of critical issues, that's a 10. Well, I want to thank you, Bob, for being with me today and being with our audience. Uh, I know uh, it's it's great to have somebody that has had the career you've had and worked in the organization you have uh, and, and found an organization like you have uh, is, is great input for a lot of people. And uh, I know I took some good uh, tidbits from here. One thing I, I, I had to say I took from the conversation listening to you talk is you always think that uh, gathering wisdom from others is so valuable and uh, I appreciate that so much. And uh, I just want to uh, tell you uh, as one servant leader to the other, you know, that's, that's where, that's where it happens. So uh, as I do with all my guests, I want to give you the chance to uh, uh, have the last words. So feel free to say anything you want. Yeah. So I would just say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm um, wishing luck to everybody out there who's in the business. And it's not just luck, but, um, you know, you have to have things break your way. And, um, you know, I'm just happy, happy hunting out there and go out and get the work and get the work done and advocate for your peers. And uh, just leave it by wishing everybody out there in the audience and your audience and you too, the best of luck in, in your, uh, in your future. Well, great podcast. Great day, um, and it is great to meet with you, Bob. Join us next week next week for another session of Connex. Mm-hmm.